Our um, scripture passage this morning is John 14, verses 16 to 29. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the, my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you, you may believe. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have given to each one of us. And we thank you for this time that we will have to learn more about the Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you will be with Tom and help him, that he will be conscious of your presence and that knowing that you will be speaking through him. And Father, we just pray that you would give us a better understanding of the Holy Spirit so that we may know him and in turn love him and that we may Want to, want to serve you because of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Well, this morning, and good morning, by the way. This morning we begin this series on the Holy Spirit. I've been looking forward to, to diving into this for quite some time. Um, we're going to do a short series, somewhere between five and 35 messages. This morning we're going to talk about, we're going to start talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now it would be, it would be difficult to deny uh, the widespread perception, especially in churches like ours, that the Holy Spirit is the least, un, least understood and least celebrated of the three persons of the Trinity. Now I pray that by the end of this little series, we will all recognize that the Holy Spirit, who is co-equal with God the Father and God the Son, is also equally worthy of our affection, our attention, 
our adoration um, and our conversation, I should add. Our purpose in this series is not to present a cover-all basis biblical theology of the Holy Spirit. That's a very worthwhile pursuit, but that would be a longer series. Uh, we will consider very much that the Bible has to say about, about the Holy Spirit in this series, in both Testaments. But our goal will be to know Him, to know the Holy Spirit more rightly, more personally, and more transformingly than some or perhaps even most of us presently know Him. We will see that the Holy Spirit is the single most influential person in our daily lives as the children of God. We'll see that He is the one through whom God is continually at work in every one of us who belongs to Christ, both to, to will and to work for God's good pleasure. He is the one who opens the eyes of our hearts to understand the Word of God and to behold God and to know God through that Word which the Holy Spirit Himself breathed out through the prophets and apostles and even enabling the Son of God. He, the Holy Spirit, is the one who is faithfully transforming us into the likeness of Christ day by day. He is the one who empowers and equips us, who gives us spiritual gifts to make us eternally useful instruments in the hands of God right now during our earthly lives. The Holy Spirit is the one whom God has made to indwell every believer in Jesus. And He is the one who inhabits the church to accomplish all of these things in us and, and very much more. My prayer is that we will be all more aware of how utterly dependent we are moment by moment on the Holy Spirit and that we'll, we will be more delighted with Him through that awareness. But before we even begin looking at the marvelous things that the Holy Spirit does for us and in us and through us. In other words, before we begin looking at the works of the Holy Spirit in His creation and in our lives, we want to make sure first that we have a reasonable biblical understanding of who, who the Holy Spirit is and always was. Even before any human being or any created thing ever existed. In his outstanding book titled The Deep Things of God that you'll hear me cite and refer to many times during this series, Fred Sanders wrote this. He said, Balanced evangelical Trinitarianism does not just throw itself into the river of good news and swim away downstream. It also acknowledges the fountain from which that river flows. Sanders' point is that we whom God has saved to the uttermost by the blood of Christ are not satisfied simply to bask in the benefits that we've received and that we continually receive from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We are compelled to behold and to know and to adore and to worship the persons from whom those benefits 
proceed. To personally know God. To abide in the love of God. First, we need to understand who the Spirit is in order to, before we start looking at the things that He has done. So we must go to the one and only authoritative source, the Word of God, that the Spirit breathed out. And what we'll find is that that source tells us that the Holy Spirit is the, the third person of the Trinity. He is fully God. Now, first, the first thing is that the Scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit is a person. There are, some, um, there are some groups that call themselves Christian that declare that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force or power that proceeds from God. In effect, the Spirit, the Spirit is nothing more than the, than the uh, effect of God working in His creation. But beloved, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal power. He is an all-powerful person. The Spirit of God is not merely a different face or form that God puts on to accomplish certain things in His creation. That's called modalism, and it is held by certain so-called Christian sects. It's heresy. It is not biblical. By the way, that's why the analogy of ice, water, and steam doesn't cut it when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Those are just three forms of the exact same thing. Okay. Uh, modalism does not explain the Trinity. Throughout uh, now, the the one who is the one who is variously referred to in the Bible as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Christ, the Eternal Spirit, is a person, not a thing. And that's undeniable if we just look at what the Word of God tells us, right? Even the passage that, that my brother just read this morning in uh, John 14 uh, says it uses personal pronouns. He, him, not it. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 40 verse 13 says, who has directed the spirit of Yahweh or as his counselor has informed him. The Spirit is a Him. In John 14 that we just read, Jesus said to His disciples, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper. In other words, a helper that's not me, that's not Jesus, and that's not the Father, but another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. We see that same pattern two chapters later in John chapter 16, another passage we'll spend considerable time in later in this series, and in many other, many other passages. Throughout the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is referred to as Him, and often in, in the Old but beloved, God has given us a lot more than uh, personal pronouns to, to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is not merely a person. He is one and the same as the one true, infinite, personal God. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh, the one true God. Both the personhood and the deity, the godness of the Holy Spirit are clearly evident 
in his activity. We're going to look much more broadly at the activity of the Spirit as we proceed through this series, but for now, I just want to look at a small sampling of his activity from Scripture that proves him to be personally and fully God. In the chapters from the Gospel of John that I just mentioned, chapter 14 and 16, Jesus declares that when the Holy Spirit comes, after Jesus' return, his ascension and return to his Father's side, he, the Holy Spirit, would come to be with his disciples and in them. Jesus promised his beloved disciples that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said to them. Does that sound like an impersonal force? Jesus declared that he would ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit and the Spirit would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He would guide the disciples into all truth, including truths that they were not yet ready to receive when Jesus was physically with them on the earth. In other words, the Holy Spirit picked up right where Jesus left off with regard to revealing that which God intends to make known to humanity. Jesus said to the disciples that he, the Holy Spirit, would, quote, take of mine and disclose it to you. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul describes the God-sourced wisdom that you and I and every child of God bear in this world as Quote, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And the very next thing that Paul says is, for to us, God revealed these things through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And that's where Fred Barnes uh, Fred Sanders gets the title to his book, The Deep Things of God. Paul goes on to say, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the, by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual, spiritual thoughts of God with spiritual words. Just a few verses later, Paul says, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? He's pulling that question out of the Old Testament. And then he says, but we have the mind of Christ. We don't get to instruct God, but we have the mind of Christ. An impersonal force could not possibly know the deep things of, of God. An impersonal force could not reveal to redeemed men and women the thoughts of God and the very mind of Christ. And neither could a person who is not God. Neither could a person who is not God. Think about this for a moment. Could Paul or anyone else rightly declare of any created being that such a being knows all things that can be known about God, even the very deepest things that are true of God? 
Not some things, but all things. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man until the Holy Spirit made them known to God's people through the incomparable word that he himself breathed out. There's not a chance. No created being could reveal the deep things of God to man, the creature. Only the Holy Spirit, who is fully God and co-equal with the Father and the Son, could know and make known such things. Another line of evidence of the deity, the godness of the Holy Spirit, is that the Bible often speaks of the Holy Spirit interchangeably with God. In fact, interchangeably with Yahweh. You'll remember Yahweh is the covenant name that God gave to himself, that God declared of himself to Moses when Moses met God on Mount Sinai in the form of the burning bush. And Moses, God told him to go and speak to Pharaoh and deliver his people. And Moses said, who am I to say sent me? And God said, Yahweh, I am has sent you. In John chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus laid claim to the same covenant name of God that God had given to Moses. The same, beloved, is true of the Holy Spirit. Let me start with something in the New Testament, then we're going to look at a New Testament, Old Testament connection. And first, in Acts chapters 4 and 5, uh, many new believers in Jerusalem, after, soon after the ascension of the Lord Jesus, were selling their possessions and they were pooling their finances to ensure that the material needs of all the saints in Jerusalem were being met. Acts 5 verse 1 says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and a great fear came over, over all who heard it. In that passage, Peter equates lying to the Holy Spirit with lying to God, because the Holy Spirit is God. The words of God spoken by Yahweh in the Old Testament are repeatedly attributed to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Yahweh, the covenant name of the one true God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. The New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 15 to 17, points back to the new covenant promise in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. The writer of Hebrews, it was interesting to me, we were, we were in this passage just a few verses before this, this morning. Uh, and actually, my brother Don Glenn read this part of it as well. 
The Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind I will write them. He, the Holy Spirit, then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now listen to the Old Testament passage that's being cited in that New Testament passage. This is Jeremiah 31. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. When you see the word Lord in all caps in the Old Testament in your Bible, that's, that's just a way of translating the word Yahweh. I am. God says, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Okay, so did the Holy Spirit speak the words recorded in Jeremiah 31 or did Yahweh? God's answer to us is a resounding Yes, Yahweh, the Holy Spirit, spoke these words. I could show you several other examples just like that. The Holy Spirit, beloved, is the third person of the Holy Trinity. He is the third person of the triune God. God the Father is Yahweh. God the Son is Yahweh. God the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. And Yahweh is one. Monotheism is the belief that there is one and only one God. And as my brother Jimmy Ellis said to me earlier this week, Christianity is fiercely monotheistic. That's because the Bible, the revelation of God to mankind, is fiercely and relentlessly monotheistic. One of the most predict predictable objections against Christianity <laughs> Uh, that is seared into the mind of every Muslim, and we ran into it at the debate at UTD several times, one of the objections is that by holding to the doctrine of the Trinity, we Christians are actually tri-theists instead of monotheists. They assert that it is simply impossible to say what we say about the Trinity without believing that there are three gods and not one. But in reality, it would be impossible to come up with a more blatantly false claim about the Christian faith. In the great declaration of Deuteronomy 6 called the Shema, which means here, a passage that, uh, that presents what Jesus called the greatest commandment of all, God says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11, God says of himself, You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Listen, before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me, I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. 
In the next chapter, Isaiah 44, verse 6, God says, Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. Where else have you heard that I am the first and the last? The Lord Jesus Christ. Read the, the last couple of chapters of Revelation, especially the last one and the first one. There are many passages, beloved, that assert the absolute uniqueness and oneness of God emphatically, clearly, and repeatedly. So how can the Bible declare forcefully over and over that there's only one God, but at the, at the same time present three distinct persons as God, as Yahweh, the one true God? Well, the early church recognized that both of these truths are clearly established in the Bible, that God is one and that God is three persons. And they, they came up with the, the formulation that God is three persons in one essence. Three persons in one essence. That language was simply, a, it wasn't new when it was voiced. It was, just, it was just a way of expressing something that the church had beheld ever since, ever since the beginning. In fact, all the way through the Bible. We need to understand that the distinctions that the Bible points out between the three persons of the Godhead are not distinctions in nature or consciousness or will or purpose. Let me say that again. The distinctions in the Godhead that we find in the Bible are not distinctions in nature or consciousness or will or purpose. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit possess all of those things in common as one. Three persons, perfectly and indivisibly, as one God. Now our difficulty with this marvelous truth <laughs> is that we simply have no point of reference for the triunity of God outside of God Himself. And we must be content to have no secondary point of reference for this marvelous reality. In regard to no other being can we speak of distinct persons as possessing one nature, one consciousness, one will, and one purpose while also being in loving, intimate, personal, and blessed relationship with each other. The Orthodox Christian community Again, they didn't come to this understanding by looking at anything or anyone in God's creation. Earthly analogies don't work. They don't explain the triunity of God. Brothers and sisters, the one and only reason we embrace and defend the triunity of the one true God is because God's own revelation of Himself to mankind in His Word presents Him in this way. Godly humility demands that you and I don't have to be able to get our hands around or to eliminate all mystery from this great truth in order to resolutely hold it to be true. It is enough that God has clearly declared it to be true. 
Indeed, a God who could be fully comprehended by his creatures would not be anything like the God of the Bible, right? He would also not be worthy of worship by his creatures. Where the distinction between the persons and the Godhead most impacts our hearts and our lives is as we behold the interactions of the three persons of the Trinity with one another in Scripture, and then as we behold the activity of the three persons in God's creation, especially in the unfolding of God's gracious and magnificent plan of a redemption of sinners through Jesus Christ. We're going we're gonna to look a lot in this series at those interactions between the persons and at the activities of the three persons of the Trinity. None of those activities is exclusive of the other two all right, now that we've laid at least a part of the groundwork for understanding the Holy Spirit's identity as the third person of the Holy Trinity, we're going to consider for a bit why that the reality of the Trinity is even better news than the Gospel. This last part of the message is where my message title comes into focus, drawn into the relationship that always was, but... I want to make sure that we, we have our focus on the fact that that is a relationship of love, a relationship of love. Fred Sanders puts it like this. Listen, this is marvelous. Listen to this. There is something even better than the good news, and that something is God. The good news of the gospel is that God has opened up the dynamics of his triune life and given us a share in that fellowship. Let me say that again. The good news of the gospel is that God has opened up the dynamics of his triune life and has given us a share in that fellowship. But all of that good news only makes sense against the background of something even better than the good news, the goodness that is the perfection of God himself. The doctrine of the Trinity is first and foremost a teaching about who God is. And God the Trinity would have been God the Trinity, whether he had revealed himself to us or not, whether he had redeemed us or not, whether he had created us or not. And he goes on to say, God, I love this, God is God in this way. God's way of being God is to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously from all eternity perfectly complete in a triune fellowship of love. Perfectly complete in a triune fellowship of love. He says if we don't take this as our starting point, everything we say about the practical relevance of the Trinity could lead us to one colossal misunderstanding, thinking of God the Trinity as a means to some other end, as if God were the Trinity in order to make himself useful. <laughs> But God the Trinity is the end, the goal, the telos, the omega, in himself and without any reference to a created world or to the plan of salvation, God is that being who exists as the triune love of the Father for the Son in the unity of the Spirit. Friends, our God, who existed from eternity past, who always was, is, and will be, whose name is I Am, did not have to wait until He created man in His image 
to have an object for His perfect love. I hope you hear that. God did not have to wait until He created us to have an object for His perfect love. He existed eternally before we existed. And He's been loving the whole time. Actively. Twice in 1 John 4, the Apostle declares God is love. Active love. Love is of the very essence of who God is. God is not the sum total of His attributes. The attributes simply are manifestations of who God is. Now, I want to spend what little remains of our time this morning considering the relationship and fellowship of perfect love that has always existed between the three persons of the Trinity so that we may then consider how unspeakably wonderful it is that God has drawn us into that very same love by bringing us into union with Christ. In his book, Mere Christianity, which is one of the first Christian books I read when I was a baby believer in, back in the 70s, C.S. Lewis said, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the, the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, before man was made, He was not love. That is not the case. God did not create mankind in His image because He was lonely. God did not create mankind in His image to fulfill an unmet need in God so that He could finally finally, after an eternity, find an object for His love. God has known perfect, intimate, relational love from eternity past within Himself. In the Bible, the eternal, perfect, intimate love between the persons of the Trinity is, is most apparent and most explicit in the relationship between the Father and the Son. That's how it plays out. That's how we see this love in the Bible most most pervasively. In his prayer for his disciples shortly before he was arrested, that very day, that very night, Jesus asked this of his Father for his disciples. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these 11 that remained after Judas bailed. He says, I also ask on behalf of those who believe in me through their word. In other words, you guys and me. That they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. You ever... You ever think about the fact that Christian unity is, is one of the most directly powerful evangelical evangelistic tools in the hands of God that, it, that the Bible declares? He says, they'll see the unity that you guys have and they'll know that the Father sent me. They'll know I'm the real deal. And he goes on, he says, the glory you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them 
and I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. And he says it again, so that the world may know that you sent me and listen to this and love them even as you loved me. Loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given to me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them. Jesus said to his father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, <laughs> that same love belongs to all that you have given to me, everyone. That perfect and divine love existed from eternity past and will exist forever. And because the Bible presents the Holy Spirit as fully God and as, as a distinct person, just as is true of the Father and the Son, we understand that the same relationship of eternal love exists between the Father and the Spirit and between the Son and the Spirit as exists between the Father and the Son. In John 15, 9, Jesus said to his disciples, just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. You know what the word abide means? It means pitch your, pitch your tent and stay. Here, beloved, is what I pray we will all walk away with this morning and never lose sight of. When God brought you and me into everlasting union with Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, He welcomed you and me into the love that has always been. When God brought us to faith in Jesus Christ, He put us in Christ. He put Christ in us. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that in more depth later. But He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He put the Spirit in us as the down payment of our inheritance. And our inheritance, beloved, is God. Jesus, Jesus said, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is Romans 8, 16 and following. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If you're an heir of God, what's your inheritance? God. It's no accident that the, the down payment of our inheritance is a person of the Trinity. The rest of our inheritance is the whole Trinity dwelling in the presence of Almighty God together with all the saints in the place that He has prepared for us for all eternity in perfect, loving relationship and communion and fellowship because God has brought us in. He has brought us into the eternal love that He has always known. If you haven't figured this out yet, beloved, this is all deeply personal to God and it's supposed to be deeply personal to us. This isn't esoteric theology. This is us bathed in the love of God, us baptized in the Holy Spirit, brought in, brought in to the love of the Trinity. Because we're in Christ, 
the second person of the Trinity. And the third person dwells in us. Goodness gracious, guys. This, uh, about 20 years ago, when I first got the book, The Deep Things of God, and I, and I looked at this, and Sanders kept pointing me back to the Word to, to prove this. It's, it, just, it just changed my view of the love of God. It changed, radically changed my understanding of the personal nature of my relationship with the Holy Spirit and with the whole Trinity. What a gift. God made us for Himself. He didn't make us so He could bless us and watch us from a distance. He made us for Himself. His love is the only pure and perfect love that exists. And in Jesus Christ, He has made us the objects, the recipients of that love. <laughs> and the last thing here I'll point out is, is Susanna Wesley is one who, talk, who wrote about this, the mother of John and Charles. She said that God did this in perfect and absolute freedom because he didn't need to do it. God is, was, is perfectly sufficient, entirely sufficient in himself. He did this because he chose to. And that, by, by the way, makes our assurance all the more sure. God doesn't try to save anybody. He saves to the uttermost. The Father has drawn us <laughs> into what Susanna Wesley and Fred Sanders describe as the happy land of the Trinity. Into the perfection of relationship, fellowship, communion, and love that is of the very essence of who God is. You and I, beloved, have been drawn into the love that always was. And as the Apostle Paul declared in Romans 8, there is nothing in all of God's creation, including ourselves, that can separate us from that love. Does this matter? Does it matter to you that the one who controls all blessing and all curse loves you with that kind of perfect love forever? Yeah, it does. That the same unchanging, unfailing, measureless love that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have shared together as one from eternity past is now yours. Yeah, that matters. In the parable of, uh, parable of the talents, you remember when the two good servants, uh, they give back what, they're, what they've invested and what, it, what's, what it's earned. They give it back to Jesus. And Jesus says to them, uh, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things and I put you in charge of many things. And then the master says to the slave, enter into the joy of your master. How many of you, when your boss gives you your annual review, does your boss say, enter into the joy of your boss? <laughs> you know what the joy of our master is? When Jesus went to the cross, Hebrews chapter 12 says that, that he despised, that despising the shame, he endured the cross for the joy set before him. You know what that joy is? Us. His inheritance. God's treasured possession. God the Father gave us to God the Son. All right, I'm done here. But when, when we who trust in Jesus are finally ushered 
into the glorious presence of our triune God. <laughs> he will welcome us unhindered into the joy of the greatest relationship and fellowship of love that has ever existed and that has always existed. And the unhindered part is what will change on that day forever and ever. You and I have already been drawn into the only perfect love that exists. We have our Lord's promise even now that nothing, not tribulation or persecution or distress or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, not death or life or angels or demons or things present or things to come or powers or height or depth or any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you know what that means? It means it is as well with our souls as well gets, and it always will be. Loving Father, thank you for your indescribable gift. Thank you, Father, for pulling us out of the pitch black darkness of our slavery to sin into the astonishing light of your excellent glory. And Father, thank you for, for drawing us into the perfect love of our triune God forever and ever. We praise your name and we do so for the sake and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs>